Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on December 19, 2018, addressing the new proposed BEAT regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo and Alex Falashko, both PwC tax partners in our international tax services practice, Kartika Singh, a PwC tax partner in our transfer pricing practice, and Eileen Scott, a managing director in our international tax services practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists, providing a general overview of the service cost method exception to BEAT, as well as the application of BEAT to partnerships. Have a listen. We are now going to move into the service cost method. Um, boy, that sounds a lot like transfer pricing, doesn't it? Yes. So, Carter K, take us through what is a service cost, sure. cost method. Um, uh, it is a lot to do with transfer pricing. It, it puts transfer pricing regulations and principles squarely um, in the center of, of this important uh, uh, provision and tracking uh, the beat rules would, would know. Uh, this, is a, this received a lot of attention. Uh, and just to back up for, for, uh, for a second, uh, the statute when defining what a base erosion payment is provided for certain exceptions. And one of those exceptions, which we've you know, uh, referred to as the SCM exception, uh, covers payment for services made by a US taxpayer uh, uh, that are eligible for the services cost method uh, as specified under Section 482. And what that means is that if this criteria for the services cost method is met, the services in question will not be construed as a base erosion payment uh, and therefore will not figure either in the base erosion percentage test. So in other words, it won't enter the numerator or the denominator. And similarly, it will not figure in the uh, as an addback in the computation of the modified taxable income and then the uh, base erosion minimum tax amount. So a significant consequence. Uh, in, in the specification of the rule, uh, the statute added two qualifiers. Uh, the first one was that it relaxed what the transfer pricing regulations refer to as the business judgment rule. And what, what effectively what that is that if you look at 482 principles, the services cost method was not permitted for certain important services. Um, and, 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 and the easiest way to think about that is if, if, if the company as a whole is in the business of providing consulting services and the related party services in question are very similar consulting services, well, the services cost method could not apply for that. So, and, and, the, and the second thing that the, the qualifier that uh, the statute added was that the SCM exception <laughs> only applied to um, uh, the, 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 the component that was the total services cost without any markup component. And I'm getting the exact, I might have got the exact language uh, uh, slightly off, but, but the fact of the matter is that the, when you step back and think about it, the SCM is a US construct, right? It was effectively designed and has come, up, come to be used as a safe harbor for outbound services. Okay, um, for inbound services under global transfer pricing principles, uh, a foreign service provider and the jurisdiction would expect the service uh, payment to include a profit element mm -hmm. and a markup. So this particular language in the statute that, that 
limited the SEM exception to the, just the cost element led to a lot of debate. Um, it led to a debate where, where, you know, words were literally dissected in minute detail, both spoken uh, and uh, written words. Uh, Long-standing friendships came under tension. Uh, maybe that's an exaggeration, I but know, but 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 there was a lot of debate um, as to, and the debate was really around: Does the presence of a markup or a profit component essentially taint the entire payment, such that the SCM exception does not apply to that entire payment, or the SCM exception applies but only to the cost component, um, but not the markup component? And taxpayers were talking about you know, maybe having separate accounts for the markup component and the cost component, so on and so forth. Well, as it turns out, the proposed regulations address it, uh, this, this, this debate. They address it very unambiguously, and they address it in a, in a very taxpayer-friendly manner. Right. And they say that the presence of a markup does not taint the entire payment. Uh, the cost component is um, eligible for the, the, the SCM exception. And you don't even need to have separate accounts for um, the, the markup and the, um, uh, the, the cost component. What, they, what the regs do say is that you need to have permanent books and records uh, allowing for a verification of the total amount uh, paid for the services uh, and the total uh, services cost base. Uh, and, and in that sense, uh, the books and records requirement is not that different from the 482 standards, although it is different, and the regs specifically cite their own requirements rather than the 482. Uh, the regs also import a lot of concepts and principles uh, from the services regulations under 482 by direct reference, um, and these standards and principles have a bearing on, A, what kind of activities and services are eligible for the services method exception um, um, by, but, but also noting that the business judgment rule is relaxed and which means that it potentially widens and broadens the scope of services that can actually avail of this exception. And secondly, uh, the principles that are there under 482 that govern how the cost base is determined, right, um, which um, in, may include allocation criteria and so on and so forth are all imported by reference, like I said, to those, to those provisions in, in, in 482. And the larger point being there that like most things in transfer pricing, this is not an exact science. Uh, there is room for judgment, there is room for discretion, and there is, and anytime you have that, you also have room for dispute. Um, and my experience in my, uh, on the SCM is, in the outbound context, it's really not been the focus of too much audit activity, um, and that's consistent with its overall intent and use, uh, you know, essentially as a safe harbor. But I don't think that we can really draw too much conclusion as to how the SCM exception in the BEAT context is gonna be audited and what kind of scrutiny we can expect. And uh, my reason for saying so is that the BEAT provision uh, in its inherent design has a cliff effect built into it. It means that a taxpayer's tax liability can actually jump even if the, uh, a tax attribute, in this case base erosion payment, moves by a very small amount, but that small amount takes you over a threshold. And 
so, so it's quite possible that taxpayers' positions around how much of a service payment is cost versus how much is a markup can lead to a lot of scrutiny, especially if they're on the cusp, because a small change uh, can, can put them in beat territory. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, that also reminds me so much of what I heard when people refer to BEAT as being, you know, sort of an international tax provision, international tax specialist covering it. Clearly, it's actually, a, or at least a big part, if not the majority of it's transfer pricing and, and looking at um, the, the accounting method side for all kinds of other issues in here. So it's, it is, in and of itself, a very multidisciplinary area of the law that people are going to have to get very, very comfortable with. Well, that's true, and, and, and the, the, the very definition of BEAT uh, central to that is a related party payment. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to plug transfer pricing here, but, but transfer pricing is front and center in this, in this provision. Well, I think a lot of people were complaining. The arm's length standard was read out of the code with, with reform and all these things, too, so we absolutely have a place for you still, right? Okay, uh, complexity in other places, too. Partnerships. Um, Alex, can you take us through some of the issues there? I'd be happy to. Um, the, um, a few words in the partnerships, generally um, a common sense approach to dealing partnerships in the context of BEAT. Um, the BEAT provision itself, the statute, did not address partnerships at all, so a lot of taxpayers were wondering how to apply these rules in the, in the context of, say, a U.S. corporation and a, another non-U.S. party owning a partnership and perhaps some you know, business operations or assets through that partnership. For purpose of the, the BEAT re, uh, regulations, BEAT provision, uh, the regulations treat partnerships as an aggregate. Um, so helpfully and very clearly saying that determinations about how to apply the gross receipts test, how to look at the payments either made or received, uh, one would look to the partners and not to the partnership. Um, similarly, the rules are pretty clear that to the extent a partnership acquires property from a foreign related party, after the effective date of the of the of the bead provision, um, the potential depreciation, the amortization deduction, for example, with respect to that property, could also be considered a base eroding payment to the extent attributable to a U.S. partner. Um, on the next page, a um, couple of additional points on the um, on the partnerships. Um, the um, there's a de minimis exception that really relieves um, application of these rules to the extent partners only own a small percentage in the partnership interest, uh, less than 10% in terms of capital profits or income gain loss deduction, or to the extent uh, and to the extent the value uh, is less than 25 million. The deductions attributable to assets that may be acquired for um, by, by a partnership from a foreign-related party, as I mentioned before, um, whether it's any recognition or non-recognition transaction, would generally be treated as a base erosion tax benefits. Um, this is the one that I think, while intuitively that kind of makes sense once you um, adopt an aggregate approach for purpose of the beat, um, we think that a number of taxpayers will really be um, both having to do a lot of heavy lifting to try to figure this out, as well as there's really some unanswered questions, like, for example, um, the rules seem to focus a lot on sort of how did the property gets into the partnership and say a 721 transactions, but the rules are generally silent what happens after that. So for example, to the extent there are 
certain transactions occurring later on, where there's basis adjustments, uh, special allocations, those things are not specifically addressed or called out in the rules. So there's a lot of open questions um, as regards to the partnership. Uh, but to me, the takeaway from the, you know, the partnership aspect of this, this whole aggregate treatment, um, there's both a uh, administrative, you know, bookkeeping complexity uh, to try to identify and address and really analyze the transactions that flow through and deal with them at the partner level, as well as really being careful. Uh, number of taxpayers, for example, own, you know, certain assets, tangible and intangibles through partnerships. So it's really easy to imagine a situation one might find themselves with the, the amortization of the IP, for example, flowing through to a U.S. partner being treated as a base eroding uh, payment. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the speakers. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you. Mm -hmm.